1: The Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Welcome to this very first episode of Tudor's Dynasty series on Mary I, England's first crowned Queen Regnant, hosted by me, Johanna Strong. I have just submitted my PhD at the University of Winchester about Mary's legacy, and this week I'm joined on the podcast by Melissa Thomas. Melita is the co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, an online repository for all things Tudor and Stuart, and author of a number of books and diaries, including The King's Pearl, Henry VIII, and his daughter, Mary. She's currently a PhD student, undertaking research about Mary I's networks before she became queen. Today, she'll be sharing her latest research with us, so let's get started. First of all, it's wonderful to have you on, Alita. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you very much for asking me. It's great to see so much interest in Mary now. So what first got you started in Mary? Um, I think probably like lots of people. It was where my first interest in in Tudor history generally started was... I don't know if you remember back to, um, you probably weren't, you're too young, the 1970s, uh, The Six Wives of Henry VIII with Keith Michelle and uh, Glenda Jackson as Elizabeth R. And that encouraged so many people to be interested. So like lots of people, I became interested in Elizabeth first. But then I sort of branched out and I read the wonderful trilogy by Hilda Lewis about Mary, novels, but um, I think they're out of print now. And I just became more interested in Mary. I felt she was a more, there was so much more to her than it, when she was portrayed. And then I also, well, there was the whole sort of bloody Mary thing. Uh, but then I, the more I read, the more I realized that wasn't a, a, a reasonable assessment. Um, but I did become very much party to the kind of tragic Mary narrative as well, thinking that uh, if she wasn't bloody, you know, that she had such a terrible life with her father and that everybody was horrible to her and that she was, you know, rusticated in the country and kept away from any kind of politics. And I I sort of subscribed to that. And then I came across a uh, another novel. I don't know if you've read uh, C.J. Sansom's books, Shard Lake. And in one of them, he referred to Mary as um being the recipient of some new apartments from Henry VIII, uh, a development of a suite of apartments just for the princess at Whitehall in 1543. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because I didn't know about that before. If Henry's buying, uh, you know, building apartments for the princess in Whitehall in 1543, long before he's married Catherine Parr, then that idea that um, Henry and Mary had a bad relationship, well, it can't be true, can it? And so I looked it up, and indeed, you know, Samson hadn't made it up. I, uh, Simon thurley has got information about it, and so forth. So I then thought, well, actually, let's let's put aside all of this idea about what Henry and Mary's relationship was like, and go back to the sources and try to reread it, uh, not looking backwards and not, but actually see what information is really there. And that was the uh, genesis of *The King's Pearl* to actually look at that relationship and find it was so much more nuanced than it had previously been portrayed and that Mary herself was uh, very much more politically involved in her youth than any biographer had really identified.
1: So can you tell us about your previous work on Mary? We have the King's Pearl. How does that fit into kind of your wider work on Mary?
0: Well, that was the uh, the King's Pearl was the starting point then, and uh, so it only goes up to 1547. But then that also what what became very, very clear um in reading that is is how Henry um thought about Mary and, and her political skill. And another big area I think that is perhaps not fully talked about, and I haven't yet got to it in detail in my research, is after Henry's death, all the books will tell you that. Uh, Henry left Mary and Elizabeth um, lands. Henry didn't leave them land. He deliberately did not leave them land. He left them cash. And the reason he didn't leave them land is because he didn't want to create an overmighty subject who could challenge his son. The idea was that the council would pay Mary an allowance of £3,000 a year so she'd have cash, but she wouldn't have land. And land is where power was in Tudor England. And the council clearly not appreciating Mary's political mind the way her father did. Um, and possibly because they didn't have the cash to pay it out, possibly to um, sweeten Mary over the um, the changes in Henry's will. They gave her, instead of £3,000 worth of cash a year, they gave her £3,000 worth of land in East Anglia, out of the Howard estate. The- and they basically created the conditions that Henry had stri- striven. so hard not to create which was to give mary her own power base and she used that very very effectively in 1553 had had she only had cash she wouldn't have had the ability to do what she did again it's 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 quite subtle people say well you know he left her money but actually when you when you really look at it that's not what happened um and and mary took advantage of that uh it's so so that's that was sort of another really interesting area that I need needs more work. Oh, and Jerry McIntosh has talked about it quite extensively in her thesis uh, about the pre-accession households of of Mary and Elizabeth. But it is that nucleus of her households that were very, very supportive in 1553, which Anna Whitelock looked at um, uh, Rochester and Englefield and uh, the, the the rest of the, the, the men who surrounded Mary in East Anglia. They were her her affinity in exactly the same way as, you know, 50 or 60 years before the affinities that surrounded the Yorkists and the Lancastrians had, you know, created war and tension. So, so that's sort of an interesting area. And then uh, sort of parking, Mary, I, I did a master's in historical research at the Institute of Historical Research. And one of the areas that really interests me was digital history, partly because in my other life... Um, I, I come back to history later in life, having missed it first time round, although I wanted to do it. It didn't, didn't pay terribly well. So I went into real estate and and I do a lot of IT. So I was very interested in digital methods for analysing history in new and different ways. And I was fascinated by network theory. Uh, now, anybody who's ever been on LinkedIn will know that the, the principle of network theory is In one line, but you know, but as far as it relates to sociology and people, is as we have always known, and as the Tudors certainly knew, it isn't what you know; it's who you know. And network. uh, If you go on LinkedIn, it's not about asking your friend for a job; it's asking your friend's friend's friend for a job, because they know about jobs that you you don't know about, your friend doesn't know about. And that's if you look at uh, Tudor networking or being good lordship, that was all about asking for favours for friends, and in reciprocation, you've got a favour for your friend when the time is right, building networks. So what I wanted to do and what I'm doing with my PhD is seeing how we can look at digital methods of tracing networks to see how Mary built a network and how she used it. And that's um, what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) Yes. Which is, I think, the big things out of that If only the Dudley family had known in 1547 that what they were doing was going to come back and bite them in 1553, (laughs) (laughs) I think they would have done it very differently. And I think what's so fascinating about your research is that you are using these digital techniques that I think I am not very good at the digital side. And it just astounds me when you have these graphics of... All of the networks. And I just think this is this is so cool. Like it's it's so fascinating to be able to see as opposed to just imagine these yeah. lines of affinity. And so, obviously, we have these political ties and we have these personal ties. How how does Mary keep that network? Together, I guess. What sort of networks are you looking at in terms of? Obviously, she got letters. She got gifts. What all is in this?
0: That's the. I mean, that's the interesting thing about networks, and this is where network theory. You have to be very careful to understand what you're what you're looking at, because uh, network theory, you know, in, in in history, it's nearly always done using letters. And Anna and Annette have done a load of stuff about the from state papers, but of course you're then privileged, privileging a relationship where you can see a see a letter because that creates a you know you you, it doesn't tell you about relationships where they live next door to each other but there's no evidence so you always have to be careful about that so letters are a key thing uh, and that's what most um uh, early modern letters networks and things focus on there's quite a bit being done in this space but to get away from that single thing I'm looking at gifts I'm also looking at uh offices so how did mary reward her followers after she became queen who got what officers how can i see have you know are they people who were already in the network or are they new people but one of the surprising things or one of the interesting things because of course you know with most research you're not really necessarily discovering lots of new things but you're seeing a different perspective on information so we know, of course, that uh, uh, many of uh, Mary's councillors and officers had previously worked in uh, Edward's regime and Henry VIII's. But actually, when you look at uh, people like Bonner and Gardiner, they started with Wolsey. So you can you can trace. This, and you can almost see that you know there is clearly a career civil service here, quite apart from you know th- who the monarch is. As these more talented men move from master to master, so Cromwell goes from. Um, uh, Woolsey to to henry uh risley goes from uh from cromwell to henry and then dumps cromwell uh, so so you can see these people moving about so yeah so how did mary keep it together you know by by reward basically because that's that's where power is in in then and that's where it is now it's you know who can you give a job to you've only got yes. to look at one you know the modern cabinet who's going to be in who's not going to be in it's it's all very, I mean, it's all very similar. We don't cut their heads off anymore, but, but, the, but the principles are very similar. So, uh, but another really interesting, and I think you might want, um, Valerie Shooter will tell you perhaps more about this, is also looking at book dedications. That's another form of linkage. Not necessarily in the sense um, that it's person to person, because you can't always assume that just for somebody dedicated a book to Mary, that she knew them or cared about them or had any interest in the book. But what you can look at is is all sub subgroups. So, for example, I just came. This is a new piece of information to me recently. Um, uh, Lord Hussey, who was Mary's um, controller of the of the household, uh, just before the before her household was broken up in fifteen fifty three, and he he was later executed in the Pilgrimage of Grace. But he commissioned an abbot. Um, sorry, not on that, but you were the Confessor General of the Abbey of Sion to do some translation work for him of a particular book. But again, it was it was about the, this, the, the monks of Sion were interested in reforming the church, but not in quite the same way as the evangelicals were. They had a different vision of how the church could be reformed and transformed, which is perhaps similar to how Mary and Paul looked at it. Uh, in in the 1550s so um so you you start to see how you know mary didn't necessarily although she was very keen on the abbey of sun and it was one of the ones that she refounded so that's an area another area although you you can get lost down all these rabbit holes but book dedications also when you see who wrote to her and what they dedicated to her and the types of work and who they all were all linked to can be very interesting as well I think the, the key thing it tells us about Mary is that she was absolutely slap bang in the centre of political life, and that the idea that she, you know, was rusticated in the country and spent her time in her prayers was just is just not, not true. And the fact that Carew and Brian and um and Brown actually thought it was worth uh, getting involved in the question. I mean, it was it was political in the sense they probably thought that um you know it's it's to do with our old uh, Friend, the the rivalry between France and and Spain. I mean, that's Mary's whole life is about the rivalry between France and Spain. Um, the, if they were supporters of the Imperial Alliance, then they wanted Mary to be treated well. Quite apart from what they might have thought about it personally, uh, but she was um, she was an important political figure in Europe at the time. And no matter how much Henry pronounced that she was illegitimate. Nobody else thought so. And so he was always, again, nervous that she could challenge Edward. And she never did challenge Edward. But I always wonder what would have happened if there had been, and I don't think she'd have ch- challenged any sons, but if, say, for example, Catherine Parr had had a daughter. Now, ac- uh, uh, according to the act of succession in Henry's will, that daughter would have come before Mary. Whether she would have accepted that, I don't know. Interesting <laughs> question.
1: Yes, as, we'll never know. I think especially yeah, as you say, she never challenged Edward's kind of legitimacy as the heir, no. um, even though she certainly was not a fan of his religious policy. No. Um, but that it it changes when kind of daughters are in the picture. Yeah, of, yeah. you know, even following that early modern belief that the son inherits first and then everyone else um mary was still the oldest and was going to claim that spot and she
0: prepared her her whole life for this yes but would she have she would she have claimed it as the oldest legitimate daughter because you know say henry henry's will was that wives by a subsequent uh, daughter by a subsequent wife came ahead of her yeah yeah so we'll never know I I, th- I think she would have done myself. I think she was so convinced that she was legitimate that she would have. But then, it, of course, it would have depended on the um, circumstances of the time. And I think she probably would have had uh, European support. But whether that would have been enough? But anyway, what might have been <laughs> <laughs> the
1: historical what ifs? Um, yes. And so we've seen kind of how the people around Mary are using this network and how. And Mary is using her networks of letters and gifts, um, or I guess we we see those networks developing. How does Mary use those connections kind of during these years? I guess up to and including to the accession, how is she's using these networks as a princess and then as the daughter of a king, um, regardless of what Henry's will says?
0: I think she's certainly using him in 1536 as well. She she's she's she writes to Cromwell. She hopes that he's going to be kind to her, and he she um she she takes the advice of uh, Carew and uh, Brian and the and the rest of them, and eventually does give in. And partly she gives in because they're threatened, um, and because Henry knows that um, Mary is in, in contact with these people, and. You know that that is one of the threats held over her. That they will suffer if she doesn't give in. So she she's using it to to sort of keep keep her finger on the pulse of what's going on. Uh, I think in in fifteen fifty three in particular, we we still are not certain who tipped her off, but clearly somebody tipped her off. Um, Now I think there's a number of candidates for that. I mean Nicholas Throckmorton is one of the ones who's often mentioned. I think it might well have been um, Cecil, via his sister-in-law Anne uh, Cook, who was one of Mary's ladies in waiting. I don't know, can't prove it, but but there was there was somebody in the Privy Council was was clearly tipping her off. Could have been Arundel, um, but when you look at you know how so Cecil's sister-in-law Anne is in Mary's household. That's a, that's a one-to-one connection between the Privy Council in fifteen fifty-three and Mary's household. It, Could have been well. There's there's another theory that it's a a goldsmith of London, and Mary, as we know, um, loved loved her jewellery. So he could have tipped her off. So, but she she's using it in 1553 because she she's primed and ready to go. Um, Edward Hastings, uh, she he's one of the first people she calls to her side. But you 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 can't. I haven't found where they first start connecting yet. But clearly. The, the, that she she writes to him straight away it suggests that she's been building up a relationship um and then they had the others use it of course uh jane gifford duchess of northumberland and francis brandon you know they they come running to mary and say you know please let my husband go free i know he i know he tried to capture you and murder you but you know hey can we put that aside we've for a long time <laughs> it's all yeah. in the past yes we you know we used to send each other gifts and. Um, so, so they used the network. Um, Mary Brown, wife of Lord John Grey of Pergo. Now, Mary Brown was this is she was probably the sister of Anthony Brown. Though there are two Mary Browns, so it's a bit confusing. But the the one who was married to Lord John Grey of Pergo. Now, Lord John Grey was uh, Jane Grey's uncle, uh, brother of the Duke of Suffolk. But of course, they were all Mary's cousins, so she knew them. But Mary Brown had been one of her earliest um ladies-in-waiting goes into the household again after 1536 marries lord john gray and pleads for him after a while's rebellion and he is actually spared although both um the duke of suffolk and their other brother thomas are executed so it's it's very much a quid pro quo again it's, yeah. it's you know it's possible that rumors rumors got from lord john to his wife who, who let her old friend know. I'm, um, you know, a lot of this is, is is messengers. People didn't put it in writing. They'd send a messenger and the messenger would repeat the thing, and then that was that. So there's no no record. Um, yes. yeah. so Mary, I think, is is in the background all the time, you know, keeping her network. Uh, when um Seymour's Duke of Somerset, she she trades very much on the fact that they've been friends for a long time to not be forced into uh, except in the 1549 prayer book um they've clearly been friends since jane seymour's days lots of presents um she dines with the seymours uh and stanhope nobody else seems to have liked her and she was a radical protestant but mary seems to have been on good terms with her always so yeah. it's um yeah interesting
1: and it it adds that dimension in what in our field is the revisionist literature. So all of the I say recent, it's been ongoing for 20 to 30 years. But the this relatively recent reevaluation of Mary. And right. I think this this work just really shows that that even though we might look at it now and go, well, it's it's just a letter, it's just a gift, it's just an office, right. you go, well was it though obviously mary knows knows what she's doing and even for those personal relationships she still is able to use those kind of professionally in a sense when she's when she's becoming queen and when she's having to fight for that and i think it's an incredible display of just her intelligence and her determination and i think everything that all of the air quote bloody mary supporters mm. say oh mary wasn't all of these things no. and i think this
0: just shows she was she, she was just you know i mean I, i'm not i don't subscribe to the bloody theory or the tragic theory but mary was just like all the others she was you know she was just as politically savvy as any of her any of her family um just determined to have her own way just i mean you know just as bloody in, in a in a sense in that they they were they were a ruthless bunch, and Mary was as politically clever as as any of them were, and as politically engaged. I mean, she had, uh, you know, that Mary's tragedy is is that she, she died so young. Uh, the, you know, it, it would have been very different had she lived longer. Um, but you know, as it, as other people have said, if if you cut off Elizabeth after five years, you, you know, what have you got? So that that's that's where we never saw it really come to to fruition what she would or could have done because she knew how to manage power.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess in looking at all of this, what is the most interesting piece you've found so far in your research? Um,
0: I think one interesting area is I think the, the surprisingly warm relationship between Mary and Cromwell. And also I would, I, I think I, Cromwell is being presented very much as a, a you know the constitutional change, Elton's theory about the you know Tudor revolution government and that Cromwell was a you know constitutionalist and what have you, and that he created the power of parliament and I think looking at how Mary handled power, she took a lot of she learned a lot from Cromwell, so you know Mary Mary is his true heir in a sense in that everything she did she did through Parliament. She didn't come in 1553 and say, um, I'm the legitimate heir because I am the oldest daughter after Edward, and it's therefore uh, you know, a traditional common law. She didn't touch that. She totally based her claim on the 1544 Acts of Succession. When she um, she comes to the throne, she says, we're not going to change religion until an order for, has made, been made in Parliament. I'm not going to marry Philip until you are all agreed that it's a good treaty she absolutely copied Cromwell's activity in doing everything via parliament yeah so I think that's an interesting aspect and you start to see because you start to see how often Mary and Cromwell corresponded
1: yes Um, it's that connection that is obvious when you're looking at it but is hmm. one that I don't think a lot of people would have guessed at especially no. given their
0: relationship at the time well what we perceive to be their relationship at the time but yes. actually there is nothing yeah. that i have seen that suggests they ever had anything but a positive relationship and now that there is a whole you know i mean tom Cromwell has always been portrayed as anne boleyn's creature but actually a lot of the current thinking now is that they weren't that close you know yeah. who, who knows um but he certainly he certainly does push very hard at 1536 for her A to, to you know um bend, bend the knee so to speak but also um you know he he did he didn't have to he didn't have to stick his neck out to to facilitate the reconciliation and he clearly did. Uh, and throughout the rest of um his life, Mary writes him quite frequently. He writes to her, he gives her gifts, he sends her horses. So they they seem to have a a, a positive relationship, um, and it's certainly not what she, what one would necessarily have expected. How she then felt about his involvement in um, dispatching the, her, these other people that she was very attached to, you know, um, Montague and Lady Lady Salisbury and so forth, might explain why she was so ill in fifteen thirty nine. To you know, the, the the stress must have been terrible at that that period.
1: Yeah, that's enough to make any of us ill, let okay. alone someone who has by birth such a, a high position.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And so I guess that leads us perfectly into the
0: last question that I have for you: What is next in the PhD journey? Well, I just I just have to keep on looking for the more letters, more gifts, more because I'm I'm still nowhere near as far along as I thought I'd be because I thought I didn't realize it would be so much. I mean, so far yeah. I've got eight hundred eight hundred letters or so and I haven't even started on the privy Perth privy purse expenses. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: more reading, more networking. <laughs> yes. But
0: I mean it's yeah, and of course you can never come to the end of it. But so you have to be you have to, I have to sort of be a bit judicious about what I what I do. But um but yeah. Well I'll look forward to hearing it in
1: future it'd be podcasts, conferences. Yes. All absolutely. of the all of the usual places. <laughs> wonderful well thank you so much for joining us for our mary the first series melita it's all wonderful as always to talk to you about mary
0: thank you joe and thank you very much for inviting me my pleasure
1: we'll look forward to having everyone back for our next episode coming soon thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudors dynasty podcast you can follow and support the Tudors dynasty podcast on facebook Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudors Dynasty.